0: Here's what uh, Tim Keller wrote about Ephesians chapter 2. He said, we can say that we're more wicked than we ever dared believe, but more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope. And those are true at the very same time. We're more wicked and more loved at the very same time. And this creates a radical new dynamic for personal growth. It means that the more you see your own flaws and the more that you see your own sins, the more precious the more electrifying and amazing God's grace appears to you. On the other hand, the more aware you are of God's grace and God's acceptance in Christ, the more able you are to to drop your denials and your self-defensive and just admit the true dimensions and character of your sin. It's such a helpful tension. For 22 years now, since I've been saved, I've lived with this daily tension. Yes, I am wicked, but yes, I'm loved in Christ. Yes, I still do the wrong thing, but but I'm deeply loved in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's what we sang about in our first song, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And tonight I wanted to plumb the depths of what you're like without Christ and saw the heights of who you are in Christ. Because some of us here, I don't know everyone here, but some of us here will have too high a view of yourself you think that you are good and you think that that God is pleased with you and you don't need God or God's lucky to have you on his team and if that's you tonight you need to hear point number one tonight but some of us here have such a, a low view of ourselves and we think you know God could never accept me how could God love me and you've got to leave here understanding point two tonight because I think Ephesians 2 is this this dazzling diamond you know, a, a diamond where it's just so majestically beautiful. But you can't really appreciate how beautiful that diamond is until you put it against a, a black cloth and you can see the contrast. I'm going to do that contrast tonight. Look at the black cloth and then see the beautiful diamond. Here's the black cloth. What we were without Christ. What we were without Christ. Let me read verses 1 to 3. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. This is past. This is what you were like without Christ. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the rule of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us, no excuse, no one exempt, all of us lived among them at one time gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts like the rest we were by nature, deserving of wrath. See, Paul begins by diagnosing humanity, what all humans are like without Jesus Christ. He's not describing some particularly decadent or degraded society. He's saying, this is what we're like. But but let me say, this is not all the Bible says about humanity. This is so important because evangelicals are often quoted as being so negative and so bleak and so black about humanity. And we make comments like we're worthless and we're losers and we're scum and we're nothing but filthy rags. And Some of that is true, but but we're still made in the image of God and we're still capable of extraordinary beauty and, and extraordinary goodness and kindness. It's not just saying that we're worthless. It's saying without Christ, this is what we're like. And Paul is not describing society, you know, with murder and conflict and violence and dishonesty. He's describing you and me. So what are we like without Christ? The first word he uses is the word dead in verse 1. We were dead. Dead in our transgressions and sins. Again, he's not saying dead in a tomb. He's not talking about physically dead. He's saying you're spiritually dead because you're made for God and You're made by God, and if you live without God, then you are spiritually dead. You have no relationship with your creator. And that's hard to accept, isn't it? Because you may be the the fittest person in this room tonight, the most intellectually alert, the most powerful, influential person. You may think, I have life and I have breath, but if you have no relationship with your creator, then you are spiritually dead. You're dead in verse 1 in your transgressions. Uh, that, that word is a, a crossing of a boundary or deviating from a path. It's the, the picture, you know, of the, the javelin thrower who does the, the most amazing javelin throw, but they overstep the line. And it doesn't matter how far the javelin's gone, they've overstepped the line, and so it's a failure. Or the marathon runner who runs the fastest time but, but does a shortcut uh, cuts off a massive part of the course. He says, that's what you were like. You, you did the wrong thing. You, you chose to do things that you shouldn't have done. You overstepped the mark. The word for sins in verse 1 is you've actually missed the mark. You haven't reached God's perfect standard. And, and let's be honest, isn't that all of us? Uh, looking back on my last week, the harsh word to my family the gossip, the lie, the act of selfishness, the nasty thought, the refusal to help someone in need. We're dead, spiritually. We were, we were rebels because we didn't like going God's way and we were failures because we couldn't meet God's standards. And you've got to understand this, otherwise you won't see the beauty of the diamond. Are you enslaved, according to verse 2? I love how the world tells us that they are free, but, but Christians are the ones who are oppressed. And the Bible says exactly the opposite. If you're in Christ, you are free. If you're without Christ, you are the ones who are enslaved. Uh, verse 2, you, you used to follow the ways of this world. Uh, so that the culture shaped your thoughts, society shaped your life. The media, your lecturers, your friends, you just went the way of the world. And you did what you wanted, verse 3. You gratify the cravings of your flesh. That is your sinful nature. There's nothing wrong with desires. Desires are really good things, aren't they? Your desire for food is good. Your desire for sleep is good. Your desire for money is good. But when that desire leads to gluttony or greed or or laziness, that's a wrong desire. The problem with our desires is that we're just addicted to them. We gratify them all the time. He says, without Christ, you were led by the world and by your flesh. And, and behind both of those is someone that, that Paul calls in verse 2 the ruler of the kingdom of the air, uh, the one who's at work in all people, persuading them that God isn't real and eternity doesn't matter, and he's called the devil. I hope the devil's real. He's very real. Jesus made that very clear. The devil is tempting, he teases, he tricks, he deceives, he destroys, he's he's prowling around like a roaring lion. And that was us, without Christ, enslaved to uh, the world, the flesh and the devil. And the third thing without Christ is that we are condemned. Again, verse 3 is a very harsh verse, isn't it? Look at it with me. Like the rest, we are by nature deserving of God's wrath. Not a popular verse, is it? How about unpopular it is to talk about money in church, to talk about God's wrath in church. What's the problem with this verse? People don't understand God's wrath. They think that God's wrath is spite or malice or revenge. No, God's wrath is his personal, righteous, measured, constant, just hostility to wrongdoing. And people don't understand God's love. They think that God's love is always warm and cozy and cuddly. But, you know, a parent who never disciplines wrong is not loving their child. And for me, it was the moment when I realized that love is not the opposite of wrath, but God's wrath is an expression of his love. Love is not the opposite of wrath, but wrath is the expression of his love. Listen to this third-century theologian. He said, he who does not get angry does not love. If God can look at sin and evil and injustice and hypocrisy and violence and abuse and, and not get wrathful, then he's not much of a loving God. And so we deserve God's wrath. The thing I love about this truth, that without Christ we were dead and we were enslaved and we were condemned. it Actually, just it's totally liberating. It says everybody here who's in Christ has got a past. We've all got a past. You can't categorize people as being worse or better than other people. We're all in the same boat. And why am I pushing this truth? Because if this is not true, if it's not true that without Christ, people are dead and enslaved and condemned, then you can just take or leave the gospel. If it's not true, then the people I love who are not in Christ, my, my brother, my sister, my friends, my people in the community, then what's the point? It was a story of a, a medical student who uh, found himself in a, a morgue one night, and so he walked up to this dead body, walked up to the dead body, and he just went, "Boo!" Do you know what happened? He didn't bat an eyelid because he's dead, and that's what you're saying about us. You need a miracle. You need an absolute miracle to have life, spiritual life. Do you remember that passage in Ezekiel where it talks about the dry bones? That's us without Christ. And that was us. But the extraordinary thing is that that's the black cloth, if you want, but the extraordinary thing is the diamond, that our God is a God of resurrection, our God is a God of new creation. And, and Paul has already prayed that these Christians would know God's power And how do we know God's power? Every time someone comes from death to life. That is the most powerful act that God can do. So without Christ, we were dead, enslaved, and condemned. But in Christ, let's look at the diamond. Verse 4 has been described as the the best butt in the Bible. But, because of God's great love for us, God who is who's rich in mercy, he made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgression, it's by grace you've been saved. Did you spot the main verb? Verse 5, you've been made alive with Christ. That's what you are in Christ. You've moved from death to life. God has breathed life into your dry bones. You have a relationship with your creator. And now this is the extraordinary thing. Do you remember how Paul, in Ephesians chapter 1, talked about what God had done for Christ. But what did God do for Christ? How did God show his power? God raised Christ and God seated Christ. Now here's the miracle. Here's the truth. What God did for Christ physically, he's done for you spiritually. What God did for Jesus physically, he did for you spiritually. Look at it with me. Verse five, he he made you alive. He gave you life. Verse 6, God raised you with Christ. Verse 6, God seated you with Christ. See, if you're in Christ, if you've come to Jesus, if you sheltered under the cross, if you've willingly acknowledged your helplessness, if you're in Christ, then then you're alive, you're raised, you're seated. Isn't that extraordinary? The the way that's described is is a word that's often used in Christian circles, it's the word Saved. That's what he says in verse 5, it's by grace you've been saved. It's just a relational word saying you've been saved from your sins, you've been saved from wrath, you're actually alive and you have life and you've been resurrected and you're now seated with Christ. Does that sound arrogant to you? Does it sound arrogant to say, hi, I'm Paul and I am alive in Christ, I've been raised with Christ, I've been seated with Christ, I'm now with Christ? It's not arrogant, is it? It's just a a, a certainty because Jesus has done all those things. Now, why did God do that? Look again, verse 4, because of his great love for us. Isn't that extraordinary? Helpless corpses, prisoners on death row, yet God loves us. And it's not as though God saw something special in you. It's not as though God saw some potential in you. He just loves you. It's a great love. It's an unconditional love. It's a lavish love. It's an unfailing love. It's an intense love that would send His own Son to a cross. That's how much God loves you. It's a love that shows no favoritism. It's a love, verse 4, which is rich in mercy. It doesn't give you the punishment that you deserve. It is full of mercy. It's a love, verse 7, which is expressed in kindness, that generosity. It's a love, verse 5, which is called grace. And God's love, God's mercy, God's kindness is all summed up in one word, and that word is grace. Isn't that the diamond? Undeserved favor, free gift from God, it's called life. One of the first Christian songs I learned was by, a bit daggy, by a guy called Graham Kendrick. Let's read a bit. It's called Come and See. It says, we worship at your feet where wrath and mercy meet. And the guilty world is washed by love's pure stream. For us, he was made sin, oh, help me take that in. Deep wounds of love cry out, Father, forgive I still remember the first time I realized that God loved me. It was 22 years ago. And I realized that, yeah, I wasn't this perfect person that everyone thought, this good person that everyone thought I was. And yet God loved me. And I wonder if someone asked you tonight, do you know that God loves you? How would you answer that? And you asked, of course he loves you because he sent his son to die for you. If I said to you tonight, how did you become a Christian? I hope you wouldn't say, oh, I'm a really good person. (laughs) But I fear some of us would say, oh, you know, I understood that Jesus died for me and I repented and I believed. And Paul says, no, no, you became a Christian because God loved you and because God was merciful to you and God was kind to you because of God's grace. And it's so important for us as a church just to bathe in grace, isn't it? Just to bathe ourselves in God's grace. In, in terms of our evangelism, we might have strategies and plans, but what we're in is prayer for God to be gracious. In our teaching, I hope, I don't teach law, but grace, 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 grace. So that's the diamond, God's love, God's mercy, God's kindness, God's grace, and he's lavished that on you. See the black cloth, what we were without Christ? Dead enslaved, condemned, in Christ we're loved and we're, we've experienced mercy and kindness and grace. So what? What do you do with that? I've got two more words for you. Here's the first word. Humility. Humility. Look at verse 8. It is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourself, it's a gift of God, not by work so that no one can boast. I, I don't know, maybe the Ephesian church were looking down on some people thinking they were better than other Christians. Maybe they slipped into their, their works-based theology, you know, I'm on this roster and I, I lead a connect group and I, I do that and I sing in a music team, so, so God would be pleased with me. But if you understand grace, all boasting goes out the window, doesn't it? And please don't say, oh, but I had faith. Uh, I had the trust in God. Yes, you did, but look at verse 8. You've been saved through faith, but even the faith is not from yourself. The faith is a gift from God. And when you think about that, that you were helpless and God was gracious and God gave you the faith and God raised you and made you alive and it has nothing to do with you. What's your response? Just Humility. I love the story. There's two men in church, and they are kneeling at the communion rail. One's a judge. True story. One's a judge, high court judge in the UK. One's a convicted criminal. And the judge was the one who sentenced his man to jail. Whilst he was in jail, this criminal became a Christian. And they're sitting at the communion rail on the same Sunday and the minister says to the judge as he walks out did you see who was nearly next to you at the communion rail and the judge says oh yeah what a a marvelous miracle of grace and and the minister says yeah it is a miracle of grace isn't it and the judge says who, who are you talking about me or the convict and the minister says oh well the man who's been released from prison and the judge says no I was talking about me In many ways, for this man who's obviously done wrong, easy for him to see that he needs forgiveness. But I'm a miracle of grace because I was brought up in a good Christian home and I was taught from a very early age how to be a gentleman. And I went to Oxford and I studied law. I was a very good person. But God did a miracle of grace in my life and showed me and opened my eyes that I needed Jesus. I'm the walking miracle of faith. And I'm sharing that story because perhaps we as a church think that we are successful. We've spent our whole life being told that we are good, or how clever you are, or how able you are, or you're a self made businessman or businesswoman. But when it comes to being a Christian, we're all equal, we're all the same. There's no one who's superior. There's no one who's inferior. There's no strutting around as if you are somebody. There's no boasting about how good you are. There's no comparison games. That's what grace does. It's a total leveler. And that's why verse 9 just has to ring true so that no one can boast. Please don't think you're somebody here tonight. You're just a sinner saved by grace. Here's my second word for us. It might surprise you. Humility and works. Having gone out of his way to say that works don't count, verse 10 comes a bit of a shock, doesn't it? For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. I love this verse. The word for handiwork in verse 10 is the word poema we get poem it's the greek word means a work of art or a statue or a song or a painting or a poem or it's a masterpiece you are god's masterpiece isn't that beautiful you don't have to go to a, a waterfall to see a masterpiece you don't have to go to a sunset to see a masterpiece you just come to church and we're surrounded by masterpiece i'm one you're one And because of that, we're God's masterpiece, the new creations in Christ, and we're created in Jesus. What to do? Good works. Let me totally clear here, so the emails don't come flooding in. We are not saved by works, but you are saved for works. You're not saved by your good works, but you are saved for good works from every page of Scripture. There's a few on your screen. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you for every good deed and word. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of our sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. One more, Titus chapter 3. Now, when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we'd done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour. Here it is, so that... Having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. I want to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. He's saying if you're bathing in God's grace, if you realize that you were the black cloth and now you're the sparkling diamond, then what do you do? You do the good works. You live the good life. Not just because you actually want to convert people, you do want to do that, but you just, just want to live the good life. You want to live a life that's pleasing to God, you want to love your neighbours, yourself. Do all the good works that God has prepared for you to do. I've said to you before, there are actually five Gospels there are Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, and what's the fifth one? Your life. And most people out there don't read the first, first four gospels, but they do look at your life. And when you're bathing in grace, you just want to do the good works because you're a walking masterpiece. I hope you leave here tonight thinking, I'm a walking masterpiece. I'm the sparkling diamond. Because God's loved me and God's been kind to me and God's been merciful to me and God's been gracious to me. How could I not want to do the good works that God's prepared me to do? It's the most wonderful passage of Scripture, isn't it? We're more wicked than we ever realized, but more loved than we ever dreamed. I'm going to give you a moment by yourself. Maybe you're still the black cloth, and you haven't come to Christ. Maybe you need to look again at the dazzling diamond of God's grace, God's love, God's mercy, and God's kindness. As you ponder that, we're going to then say a prayer together. And then we're going to have a time of open prayer, where just where you are, you can just stand up or stay seated in a loud voice, just, just lift out prayers of, of gratitude to God or, or things that God has put on your heart to pray for, for our community or for our world, and then the music will start and we'll we respond with two songs. So by yourself, a moment of reflection. Let's say this together. Our glorious God and heavenly Father, we confess that our sin made us spiritually dead. We didn't follow you. Instead, we followed the ways of the world and pursued our own desires and thoughts. We ignored you and gratified our own cravings, doing what suited and satisfied us. We were disobedient we're disobedient and by our very nature deserving of your wrath. But your love for us is great and your mercy is rich. Your grace saved us and you have raised us from the dead to be alive in Christ. We joyfully declare that your grace is a gift we gratefully receive by faith. We freely admit we did nothing to receive your grace. It is generous an undeserved gift that together we thank and praise you for. You have made us in Christ Jesus to do good works. Strengthen us this week to live for you and pursue these works that you have prepared in advance for us. All this we ask for the praise and glory of Christ Jesus. Amen.